Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. One of my favourite books of the last 12 months has been Free, Coming of Age at the End of History by Leah Uppy. Uppy is a professor of political theory at the London School of Economics, but her book, while it does address profound subjects like idealism, politics and the limits of progress, is far from being theoretical. It's actually a memoir of her own childhood and adolescence in Albania in the 1980s and 1990s, as that country was transformed from one of the world's most doctrinaire communist states into a new world of democratic elections and global capitalism. And it poses questions about concepts which many people may take for granted, not least what it means to be free. Leia Uppi, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Your book is... I should say at the outset, it's it's a fantastic read and, and it has been nominated for a number of awards. And you are, you're a professor of political theory. You're from Albania, which is what the, the book is about. And you've written this fantastic book, which a lot of people have commented on the, the literary quality of it. It is really a, a, a really strong piece of literature. How did you come to write a book in what is not your first language of, of such quality? Well, I don't know. That's a mystery, I guess. Um to me, I had only done academic um, writing in English. And it's funny that people comment on the literary quality because one of the things that I've always been extremely insecure about is the quality of my writing in English. It's a language that I learned late. And so I really, and I remember when I started my PhD, I was really struggling to write papers in it because I'd only learned it in school and I never lived in England. And uh, so it's something that I've always felt not particularly confident in writing about. So I was very surprised actually when people commented uh, about the literary quality of the book because I've always felt a kind of linguistic homelessness in general. Um, I stopped speaking and sort of writing academic or even literary Albanian after I left school when I was 18. Then I spent a number of years in Italy where I was learning Italian and I wrote my uh, dissertation in Italian. And I grew up speaking French with my grandmother. So English was really my fourth language. And so and they often say that languages that you learn as a grown up, you never really master in a way in which you learn before when you're sort of younger. So, yeah. So I don't know. I don't have an answer. It's just a mystery to me as well. So the book itself is a number of different things, but it is, I suppose, primarily a memoir through which you explore certain ideas through the story of your own life. And and it begins in, in the late 1980s when you're in what we call primary school, you're 10 or 11 years old, living in Albania, which is under communist rule at that time. And as far as you're concerned, it's fair to say at that point, looking at that world through your child's eyes, you think everything's pretty much okay. Yeah, I think uh, very much so, actually, um, in the way in which I guess children just take for granted the reality in which they live, if they live in a relatively secure, emotionally home environment, I think. And what stands out to me when I think back about those years 
is the fact that it was an emotionally secure environment, that my parents and my grandmother went out of their way to make sure that I felt comfortable, that regardless of all the hardship and the experience, the, the difficulties that they were experiencing, that none of that was transmitted to me. And so I knew that the country was, you know, I knew there was scarcity. Obviously, there were queues. I knew that you couldn't find everything you wanted in the shops, that there was only certain kinds of things and not others. But on the other hand, there was this ideology of hardship that was inculcated to us in school about the fact that this was a country that was committed to certain ideas of freedom and justice. And that commitment required making certain sacrifices, but it was in the name of a greater good. And I believe that in the way in which I think all other children of that age believed. It's only later that people began to doubt what the reality that surrounded them. But I was too young to have political opinions and to notice political censorship. I was just told these things in school and took them for granted and believed them and acted also compatibly with those commitments. I felt I was a pioneer and uh, the pioneer was a kind of communist youth organization and wanted to do my best to be a good pioneer. And my parents never did anything to stifle that ambition. And for the benefit of our listeners, Albania was a very particular sort of a communist state. It, uh, it aspired to a, a level of purity, you might say, in the in the pursuit of the communist ideal, which uh, which other countries in in the view of the communist leadership in Albania had left behind. It had it had left the Soviet orbit. It had left the Warsaw Pact because it thought those those countries were insufficiently socialist. Uh, it ultimately had broken with China, which was its last remaining ally. So. Was that very important within Albania, this idea of being unique or being a special country that the regime there when you, when you were being educated? Yes, it was very important. So in the years in which I was growing up, in the 80s, we were completely isolated. So we didn't really have any international strong power allies. And the discourse was very much one of the twin enemies of what was called imperialism on the one hand, so Anglo-American and so on, cap the capitalist world. And then the revisionism on the other, which went covered everything from Yugoslavia to the Soviet Union to China and all of these countries were revisionists. And the only friends that we thought we had were the ones to which we aspired to be a model. And so small Marxist Leninist groups in Africa or Ethiopia or Latin America. Or, and sometimes there were even very small Marxist Leninist groups or sects rather in Western European countries, which also looked at Albania as this kind of model of uh, exemplary socialism that made no compromises on principles. So the rhetoric of purity of principles was really important when I was growing up. And it led to this extreme form of nationalism and this idea that this, there's this one country that stood up to everyone and throughout its history had stood up to everyone and just didn't care. You know, it could be the Soviet Union, it could be China, it could be much more important and much more, much stronger and states with better weapons and so on. But somehow the people had resisted. And I think this narrative of the vulnerability of a small nation was really important uh, to me and to, to all of us actually growing up as children. Because as you can imagine, it's a story of the small guy that is able to resist the kind of the big guys. And it was told like that. And it was quite attractive. Yeah, I can actually remember there was a tiny political party in Ireland that was the Communist Party of Ireland, Marxist-Leninist, which looked to Albania for, for its ideology. And of course, in retrospect, very famously, there were these pillboxes all over the country which were there for the purposes of, of, of defence. But like all the other communist countries in Europe, things, you know, started to fall apart towards the end of the 
1980s following Glastos and Perestroika in the in in the Soviet Union. That happened a little bit more slowly in Albania. You had everything that arose from the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of all those governments in in Eastern Europe. But it was 1990 before that came to Albania, wasn't it? Yes, in part because our story had been in some ways independent from these other countries, in part because our uh, political experiences had developed in, in, in sort of separation from the Soviet bloc. There was this idea that whatever was going on in the Soviet bloc was just the end that they were going to meet at some point, because this was almost written in the books. You know, if you go the revisionist route, then you will at some point have these problems. And so it was almost a sort of a story that was being told at the time, 1989 in Albania, was, well, of course, these countries were going to fall because they were they kept making compromises and they kept kind of degenerating and being corrupt. And so this idea that there was a corrupt Soviet bloc and Soviet satellite states that had this crisis was for many months considered completely separate from the Albanian experience, which because it had been isolated, I think even the government at one point thought that they could control this. And I think when things really changed is not so much when the um, Berlin Wall fell, but I remember the assassination of Ceausescu, the murder of Ceausescu and his wife. And I think Romania was considered to be more similar to Albania in the way in which they conceived socialism and they, the way they kind of had this ideological purity and so on. And I think it was only at that point that it dawned to people that something radical, fundamental like that might happen to us as well, or that it might be possible in Albania as well. And it took a few more months for that. So it was a sort of gradual process, which meant that, and this there was this one year in which uh, there was a bit more political discussion, but I still remember being very protected from it by my parents. And so outside, perhaps the grown-ups were more, they were speaking more openly about these things and about change and so on. But on the other hand, in my family, which was this dissident family, which was very wary of whatever was going on politically because they had experienced these ups and downs for decades, they were still being very, very careful with me. And so even when there were discussions, there was code language about protests and the protesters were called hooligans on television. And my parents upheld that story of how these were just hooligans, had nothing to do with us and so on. And I think they really revealed the truth about the family and about the state and so on when it looked like the process was irreversible because the official legal declaration was made that Albania would become a multi-party state and become democratic and so on. And then that truth that they revealed to you completely upends everything that you thought you knew about them and about your country because of their own personal histories, your mother and your father, your grandmother, who you mentioned, who had always spoken to you in French. You discovered that Everything you thought you knew was wrong, really. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And so this whole thing of the mysteries of childhood, where you grow up hearing, overhearing these conversations, and you sometimes puzzle about them. And, you know, you know that there's something strange with you because you're speaking French from a very early age and nobody's speaking French around you. And you also know your grandmother's not French. She's never been to France. She doesn't have any relatives in France. And so it's kind of puzzled to me why I'm being spoken this weird language. And they always said, oh, you know, it's the language of the French Revolution and you like the French Revolution, don't you? And there was this kind of somewhat ad hoc explanations, which di- didn't really convince me as a child, but I also couldn't really have, I didn't really have resources to question them more fundamentally than that. And then it turned out that uh, my grandmother was speaking French to me because she grew up in this aristocratic family in Salonika in the, uh, just before the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And that was the lingua franca of this Ottoman Empire that was attempting to modernize and looked up to France 
as a model of modernization. And so for her, it was a way of keeping her class identity. But of course, she'd never really articulated it to me as a question of class identity. And there were other things as well. So one other thing that my parents always talked about was universities and periods spent doing research at universities. So I had this story that my grandfather had had his real degree or his first degree in Sorbonne in Paris, and he'd been he'd studied there. But then he went to do research for 15 years somewhere and did spend time doing translations and reading books and so on. And it was only when the system fell that they told me that once what they meant when they were talking about universities were actually that someone had been to prison. And that what they meant when they said my grandfather had been to university for 15 years was that he actually spent 15 years in political prison for agitation and propaganda. And so this was a very particular family context in which these dissidents who were lifelong dissidents who never believed any word, in fact, were actively rejecting everything that the country stood for, had actually brought up this child who was one of the most committed communists that you could imagine and uh, never really questioned that and, and, and never really... As I said, and there, there were lots of little things like that. So we, for example, didn't have a photo of Enver Hoxha in our house and this was a source of great dissatisfaction to me and actually often great anger with my parents as well about, you know, why everybody had a photo and we didn't have a photo and so on. And they often made excuses, but these were all the mysteries that I grew up with, but didn't have a good answer to until um, they felt safe and uh, they felt they could communicate. And your grandmother is a very powerful figure throughout the book. I think she she kind of overshadows a lot of the book in terms of that personal story you described about, which is a link back to an entirely different vanished world, as you say, of the the kind of the, the high administration of the Ottoman Empire. And I think she came to Albania to work in the government yeah, as yeah. a woman in the 1930s, which people might find surprising in, in itself. And your great grandfather was involved in the in the government there. And actually, you knew your great grandfather was a historical figure. And even though he had the same surname as you, you didn't know he was your. You didn't know it was the same person. Yeah, exactly. So I, I had grown up with this again with this character who I knew was a somewhat problematic character in the history of, in the history of Albania because he was the equivalent of the head of the Vichy government. So when Albania was invaded by the Italian fascists, he was a regent of the king and had been pivotal in kind of passing the crown of Albania, which was effectively the sovereignty transferring the sovereignty of Albania to to Italy. And so he was considered a traitor and a collaborator. And as you can imagine, communist Albania, where the rhetoric against fascism was extremely strong, this was as bad as it could get in terms of how someone had behaved. And he had the same name and surname as my father, but my family had always denied the relationship. They always said this was just contingent and this just person just happened to have the same name and surname, but I shouldn't be feeling ashamed and I shouldn't want to not talk about him or, you know, I should feel proud about the partisans and the war and the anti-fascist effort that Albania made and so on. And I remember also growing up thinking, why do we have, we didn't have any relatives who contributed to this anti-fascist resistance. The only association we had was actually to a fascist. And as, and as a child, this was very hard because this rhetoric around the war effort and the fact that Albania was one of the, the only other country in Europe, actually, uh, alongside Yugoslavia, that was liberated from the Nazi fascists without outside intervention. So with only domestic resistance movements. And in every family, this was really important that there was a relative or someone who had contributed to the war and it was commemorated every year. There was a whole celebration around it. So it was, for me, this only association I had to this war figure was someone who was an extremely problematic character and who I had to always dissociate myself and then only discovered 
when the uh, system collapsed that in fact this was my great grandfather. And of course, his well, well, then his son, your grandfather, who ended up in the prison camp, he wasn't a fascist collaborator. He was actually effectively on the left, but not not a communist. Yeah, he was the exact opposite. So he had been, and in fact, they had uh, had conflicts all along, all for their whole life, because there was his father, who was a right wing conservative figure, who was one of the founders of the kind of Albanian right wing, one of the first Albanian right wing parties, and so on. And the son was actually someone who had studied in Paris and had been part of the Popular Front in the 30s and quite a lot of uh, loyalty to socialist ideas. In fact, I've recently found doing research for my next book, some of his articles in one of these progressive newspapers in 1936 in Albania. And it's a kind of Marxist article where he talks about the crisis and, you know, how liberals respond to the economic crisis. This was obviously in the aftermath of 1929. So the financial crisis and various explanations going on about how the state should respond to this and so on. And the discourse is definitely not of someone who is not just not a right-wing person, but also not really liberal, someone who's kind of committed to a socialist. Because I also think that the non-revolutionary socialist back in the 30s was much more radical than the socialist that you have now. Social democracy, but it was actually a social democracy much more committed to principles of overcoming capitalism and of creating just and equal societies. And it wasn't just a question of taming capitalism. And uh, so he was effectively also an anti-capitalist, just not a revolutionary. So one of the things that strikes me about the book is that all this is happening. This revelation happens to you when you're, what, 11 years old, 11 and yeah. 12. The, the world is changing around you. What you think your family is, is changing around you. And one of the reasons the book is so powerful is that often happens to people when they're 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 year old. You're growing up and you're starting to see the world in a different way. But in your case, the world is being transformed around you, both personally for your family and for your country too. And how quickly does your family's life change and does Albania change in the early to mid-90s? It was quite dramatic, I think. My family's fortunes were effectively completely overturned because they went from being silenced and dissident and oppressed to thinking that they had freedom and to also claiming now a role in the new society that was emerging. There was this idea that, you know, the new the dissident families need to be rehabilitated somehow and that, uh, that there was this history of persecution and oppression that they had to, somehow the country and the state had to make amends for. And so um, they were involved, my mother was involved in politics in the new Democratic Party, which was the opposition party that was founded as an um, alternative, as an institutional alternative to the old communist party. And she was one of the first members there. My father was also he had sort of important positions in the first uh, running the port of Duras, which was the biggest port in town, being responsible for enacting what was then called structural reforms of neoliberalizing, so sort of liberalizing state enterprises and so on. So at the state level or at the societal level, it was a time of great change because it coincided with, as I say, a lot of uh, state enterprises being privatized, which meant a lot of people losing their job which also created waves of emigration, lots of unemployment, lots of inequality, and then people just trying to find ways to make ends meet in terms of having lost their kind of security. And um, and so I remember at the time that there were all these kind of new jobs, like, you know, drug smuggling or sex trafficking or just all these new things that didn't exist, which were mentioned like normal employment. So you'd say someone worked in a factory and now he does cocaine or, you know, someone was a bus driver, but now he's doing women. And they were all mentioned as normal occupations in this kind of immediate after war, after 1990 period. 
And the other thing that was also very important in the early 90s was this new discussion around uh, developing a financial sector and having uh, money that wasn't just that didn't just took this form of kind of transactional money, but money that needed to be kind of invested and saved. And that led to a number of companies emerging that promised to people very high returns for investments, which, you know, said capitalism is all about investing and saving. People need to take responsibility for themselves and to make sources, create sources of wealth and so on. And this is what eventually led to the creation of these pyramid schemes, the Ponzi schemes, which promised extremely high return for investments and worked at the beginning for some people. But then the more they took on, the more it became a kind of hype. People were, you know, selling their houses and investing money in these companies to make even more money and so on. And this all came to uh, completely broke down in 1997, which is where the book more or less ends. Yeah, and I'll ask you about that crash in a moment. I mean, and some of it has resonance to us here in Ireland, but it was 10 times worse than what happened in Ireland when 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 we had a property crash. But even in that period leading up to that, so you have a society which is transitioning from one of the most extreme forms of socialism to, it's fair to say, quite an extreme form of capitalism. Yeah. So your father, when he's running the, the port in Duras, he strikes me as a sort of a person who you would think of as a kind of a social democrat, centre-left, yeah. not, not particularly keen on thousands of people losing their jobs. But that's his job, is to kick all these people out of the port and presumably bring in automation and automation and rationalisation. And there's another figure at that point who's called by the people around him the crocodile, who is a representative of, I'm not sure, is it the IMF or the World Bank? But he's in with the prescription um, for what needs to be done to the economy. And he's arrived from somewhere else in Africa and he's applying the same prescription as he, he barely knows he's actually in Albania, does he? Yeah, I mean, he's one of these kind of liberal cosmopolitans. Uh, he's uh, someone who just has these ideas around what change requires and what development requires and catching up to the development of other richer um, states. And he doesn't actually remember, as you say, he doesn't really know the context or he, he even struggles to remember the places, the, the names of places. So he has these experiences which have taken place all over the world. And he uses these experiences to orient himself in a new context. And that leads to being very um, abstract about that context and not even wanting to engage. So in a way, the, the, the challenges that the context presents to him are the ones, are precisely the ones that he doesn't want to consider because the way he navigates all these different contexts is by abstracting from all of them and just trying to kind of keep the bare essentials in mind. And the bare essentials are that these are societies in transition, that are societies that are very difficult, that they need to catch up with the development of these other states and that they need to do certain things to catch up with the development. And then everything else is a matter of kind of resilience and um, making sure that certain things are done in the right spirit and in the right order. So, yeah, so in some ways, he's this kind of very abstract paternalistic figure who comes with very set ideas on what these societies need to develop and applies these ideas but applies them in a way that is not at all um, sensitive to the local context, but is also extremely powerful because in the end, people like my father, who are the kind of bureaucrats, who are the kind of middle people who need to execute these um, prescriptions, are the ones that find themselves precisely incapable of resisting. And so it becomes a kind of really interesting dialectic of you know the, the powerful and the weak, whereby the powerful come with a lot of power and a lot of resources, but very little knowledge. 
And the ones who have knowledge don't actually have the capacity to say, well, look, this doesn't work or it can't be done like this because they're in this um, story of backwardness and development and things having failed historically. And this new freedom requires these sacrifices. But since we are we failed in the past, we need to make sure that the ones who haven't failed in the past can tell us what we need to do. And so this weird um, connection between these two levels. Yeah, it's kind of it strikes me that along with that so-called rationality of that of, of of those of those physical measures, there's also an underlying kind of prejudice and and chauvinism that that you see that you saw after the fall of of regimes across Eastern Europe after the the initial moment of exultation and when problems emerge, for example, the wars in the former Yugoslavia. There's a sense that these are countries that never had deep-rooted democracy or civic institutions, that they've been scarred hopelessly by 40 years of totalitarianism, and they're just not capable of ruling themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I don't think that's intentional. And I sometimes wonder how much we as locals contributed to that in a way by saying, oh, we failed and, you know, we're victims. And we just... So I think it kind of went both ways. On the one hand, you had a group of people who came from the outside with this idea that they had won the Cold War and there was one model that had prevailed and that was dominant, which had clearly revealed itself superior. And so they came with a kind of superiority of the model. And on the other hand, you had the victimism of these other societies that were obviously emerging from this trauma and so on, but emerging really scarred. And I think also against the backdrop of a number of historical processes like that. So not just communism, but in the case of Albania, it was the Ottoman Empire and then it was fascism and then it was not. So effectively, you had a small country that was at the mercy of these very large historical forces throughout its existence as a separate state, which I think does something to your confidence in a way as a country and to your ability to say, well, actually, maybe even in these tragedies, there was some knowledge that developed that I can stand up for and I can... Uh, but I think this is what was what was going on at the time was this sort of back... This, this process took and, and went both ways, I think. On the one hand, there were the outsiders that came with the confidence and with the paternalists, and on the other one, there was not enough sufficient resistance from the insiders to just actually stand up for themselves. And instead, there was this narrative of almost like cynicism or nihilism, even where people said, oh, well, you know, we've survived the Ottoman Empire. We'll survive the Nazis. We've survived communism. We'll survive the World Bank. And yeah, this is not a healthy way, I think, of, of relating to change and to thinking about change. But surely it would have been quite difficult for Albanian society after the collapse of communism to actually resist that in a coherent way. In that, the you know, I suppose the many of the civil organisations that you would have had in other countries weren't there, or it would take time to build them up if they were going to be built up at all. Like, who would be able to resist it? Yes, exactly. No, no, absolutely. I think it would have been really difficult, and this is why I'm saying that I don't think it was intentional on either side. It was really about the way in which these processes developed and they came about that brought, that made it the case that the outsiders came with these set views of what was required and the insiders had these other set views about themselves and how they had to interact with the outside world. And that is what exactly led to this issue. And that's why, in a way, when I talk about this period, in both in the book, but also commenting on it, I say, well, it's not really about, you know, knowing what could have been done better then, because perhaps nothing could have been done better at that point. But it's about what can you learn from that experience in going forward and in thinking about circumstances and thinking about change of that kind in the future. Now, the collapse of those pyramid schemes in, in 1997, I'm not sure if people realise, but the consequences were absolutely horrendous. There was effectively a civil war. Violence broke out across the country. The state essentially collapsed for a while. And you describe um, those events 
in the form of the diary that you wrote at the time. It's a it's a particularly powerful part of the book because it really give, gives a sense of the fear and the chaos and the sense that, you know, nobody knows what's what's going on at all. When you look back at that period now, is that the turning point in the history of post-communist Albania? Does it still inform the way people think about Albania now? It certainly was for me personally. And I think in part also perhaps because that was coincided with the point at which I left the country. And so my time in Albania was over at that point. And so I could think of it afterwards as a block, which was divided neatly in this exactly two halves, you know, the first 10, 11 years during communism, or as you said, this kind of extreme communism, and then the other, the next nine, 10 years in this extreme capitalism. And it really shaped me because I left Albania at the point where the state had collapsed, where I had I was finishing my A-levels and I could hear Kalashnikov bullets falling on my windowsill. And my and I remember my grandmother kept telling me, oh, you just need to move the bed out of the windowsill and you'll be fine because these bullets, they don't come, you know, they're not too close. And so they don't have a lot of speeds. If they were closer, they could actually kill you. But they're actually fine. So, you know, having to think about these things and make they make these decisions as you're trying to prepare for your A-levels, your final year in school when the school is closed. I think it certainly did something to the way in which I thought about where this country, which I had lived for my childhood and, and my teenage years. And then there, another thing that happened, there was this huge um, tragedy of Albanians who were trying to escape from this chaos of civil war and uh, went on this boat to Italy. And then the boat was capsized because it was hit by another Italian marine vessel and lots and lots of women and children, including very small babies, died. And I remember this trauma, when I think about that period, it was just death and misery and tragedy and insecurity about your own life everywhere. And all these people who had hoped that they would find freedom and justice in some ways for themselves after the end of communism, it all for me was summarized by this 1997 period where everything that you had believed was going to happen in the 1990s not only didn't happen, but it almost felt as though there wasn't even hope. So it was the same situation as 1990, where you had this massive collapse of the state. But the difference was that while in 1990 there was a collapse, but there was hope in a new world and in an alternative, to me, in 97, it looked like there wasn't even hope because where do you go now? You tried socialism, you tried capitalism, and both of these things aren't working. I don't know if this is a reflection that a lot of my fellow citizens share, actually. So... In fact, it's interesting to see how the book is received in Albania because there's a lot of resistance to this idea that I have that, you know, I saw these two models and to me they were both failed and it's about thinking about alternatives and thinking about what can you recover and what can you learn from all these experiences. Whereas I feel a lot of people think, well, you know, this was just an accident along the way, but surely this country is, there's this transition that is ongoing and there's things that we still need to do to catch up with and somehow... I think the fate of Albania and the fate of the world are seen as completely separate from each other. And so there's still a world out there to which Albania needs to conform and, and become part of. And, and to me, it looks like the problems we have are all shared and we need to think about institutions everywhere and what kind of institutions we want to develop and what kind of society we want to live in. Because that's what, what you think about now, isn't it? Because what you, I mean, what you did was you left Albania to go to Italy first to, to study philosophy. Your parents weren't happy about this because as far as they were concerned, going to study philosophy meant going to study, of all things, Marxism, which they clearly didn't approve of. Yeah, I mean, to them, it was like uh, you were going to the party school, basically. And since they were never admitted in the party and they knew that I would never be admitted in the party because the party was highly selective and wouldn't take children formerly 
persecuted families. This was just off. And to them, the, the party school were a place where only spies or communist criminals went to train. And so for them, philosophy, since the only kind of philosophy that we had in Albania during those years was Marxism, Leninism, to them, studying philosophy meant effectively studying Marxism, Leninism, and so on. But to me, it was very, I remember at the time, one of the reasons why when I had to make this choice around what kind of career path to pursue was that in 97, when I was going through my A-levels and had to make decisions about my future, I remember, and I wrote this about this in my diary, it was really, really hard to think, how can you study, say, law when you live in a state where the law has completely broken down and completely collapsed, when you see it with your own eyes that, you know, there's no police, there's no... Or how can you, I don't know, study economics when you just live in this society where these pyramid schemes have collapsed and everything, all the truths that were told about what the new economic structure requires and what capitalism requires and so on. So I remember that I found it very difficult to have confidence in any particular discipline that was good for something. And so my, my parents' views were you need to have a profession, that you need to be a lawyer or you need to be an economist or you need to be an engineer or, uh, I don't know, you need to be a doctor. And all I had were questions about all these different fields, which is partly why I think I ended up studying philosophy, because it was the only discipline where you just had asked questions and had to keep asking yourself questions and find better questions and and it was a kind of ongoing process almost. So I picked it thinking that I didn't have certainty about anything and any discipline. And philosophy was the kind of discipline where it was okay to have uncertainties. And in fact, that was the whole point of the discipline was that you had these uncertainties and you try to find your way with thought processes and so on. And yeah, I, I just, I left and I went to Italy and I had this little argument with my dad telling him that I wasn't going to do Marx, that there was a lot more to philosophy than Marx. But somehow it was very strange because many years after I did end up studying Marx and it was partly the history of philosophy that led me to Marx. So I had kind of tried to avoid it for a very long time. And then I kind of kept going back to all these big questions around, you know, what, what society do you live in and how, you know, how does it do in delivering these ideals that it promises to deliver and so on. And I think you keep going back to these very fundamental questions. And then once you're back to the fundamental questions, it's not, you know, you can't say, well, I'm not reading this author because, you know, my past is tainted by the presence of, by the ghost of this author. It's just, yeah, you, you kind of dragged into the world of philosophy and then you're, all the philosophers become your interlocutors in a way. So the way your parents were right and you did end up studying Marxism after all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did. So this was the this is one of the things that I also often joke with my dad afterwards, even though he didn't really live to see me actually writing about Marx and sort of making it part of my research. But a lot of it was the point where the personal and the political came together and the, sort of the philosophical came together because I had all these philosophical questions. And then I had all these experiences from Albania and they both came, they were sort of merged in this weird, slightly unsettling way. And it was almost like a therapy for me to go through both the texts and the lived experiences to ask, your, to ask myself these questions. And then, I mean, that is the central theme of the book, I suppose, is what does it mean to be free? And you offer in, your, in the various characters in it, including yourself, various versions of what, of what freedom means from the, from the committed communist teacher who teaches you in, in primary school to the crocodile and his liberal market economics, to your mother who has one version of freedom, to your father who has another version of freedom. And you end up settling, is it fair to say, on your grandmother as being closest to your own current conception of what freedom might be? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think in the end, I think my grandmother is the moral core of the book. And it's also what I think captures my idea of freedom, which is that 
freedom to be free is to be conscious of your moral duty. And to have that consciousness of your moral duty and of the kind of the dignity of the person that is behind that authority of, of morality is for me the foundation of all the other questions that you then ask yourself about the society in which you live with. So it's the kind of foundation of social critique. And my grandmother often, I mean, she, she had this, she obviously wasn't a philosopher and she didn't have a philosophical theory of freedom or anything like that. But she often, when she spoke about her life, she always insisted that there was necessity all around her but that she had retained her moral agency, that there was no society, however totalitarian, however oppressive it was, that could take away human dignity. And she really insisted on this. She really tried to kind of inculcate me this idea that there is nothing anyone can do to you to make you lose your dignity. And if you retain your dignity, then you retain the ability to ask critical questions and to fight back. And in some ways, you also preserve the hope that things can be different because you are still there and you're still the source of moral authority. And to me, that's a really persuasive and, and very strong account actually of what freedom is to think that there's an inner freedom which can never go away, which is the foundation of social critique and that tries to be realized then in social relations and in societies. But how does that relate to social freedom and to various conceptions of of freedom from the classical liberal idea to the idea of being free free enough economically to pursue whatever whatever one's wishes are? How does the individual that individual conception of freedom you talk about relate to those to those things because i think the sort of the, the inner conception the moral conception is about autonomy about internal autonomy and the second one the more critical one is where you want to make sure that that internal autonomy is also institutionalized and so that you have institutions that actually respect the moral agency of individuals and they can only respect the moral agency of individuals if they guarantee these relationships of reciprocity and equality across the world. So it's not about some having freedom and others not having freedoms or about having structures that kind of guarantee certain things for some people, but where others have to be victims of whatever decisions are made. And so I think it gives you a very powerful, critical account of what a kind of democratic society that realizes this ideal of autonomy, of moral autonomy at an institutional level would be like. And that gives you a critical benchmark to think about the world and to think about, well, how far are the societies in which we live in which you have all these anonymous processes, these impersonal inter interactions that effectively seal the fate of more vulnerable groups, but also more vulnerable states. And what would it take to realize a kind of global institutional order where this ideal of, of respect for people is actually instantiated in institutions? I have a kind of a double-barreled question for you. One is that, I mean, the book is called Free. The word freedom was bandied about hugely in the 1990s after the fall of communism. It probably meant lots of different things to lots of to lots of different people, but it was a, almost a kind of a brand it became. And in retrospect, some critics would argue that it was very misleading that the freedom which which those political changes brought was not actual freedom. And the other part of it is that I know there has been criticism and you mentioned it earlier in Albania that essentially that you go too soft on the horrors of the Enver Husha Stalinist regime and the, the the many people who were killed and the many people in the camps and the the general abuse of of human rights and those critics it seems to me I've read a couple of them argue that you you overplay the damage wrought by the introduction of capitalism and you underplay the damage caused by communism. What's your thoughts on both those things? The idea that freedom. The freedom that capitalism brought was a false freedom and the idea that you are underplaying the damage that communism brought. 
Yeah, so the first one, I agree with that. I do think that the form of freedom that capitalist institutions give you is a very exclusive kind of freedom that just doesn't work for everyone and that doesn't give you this ideal of autonomy and control that you want to have for morality to obtain in institutional relations. So that is very much part of my core critique of capitalism, actually, precisely that it doesn't instantiate an institutional order that realizes human dignity at its full And with the second part, I think I slightly, this was sort of implicit in the comment I made when I was saying the people, the way people respond to my analysis of 97, where for me, this is like all I need to see about capitalism is to see how this ideology of civil society, free markets, political freedom, all comes together in this very pernicious way and leads to the collapse of the state with sometimes the uh, more or less silent, more or less complicit acknowledgement of the institu- international institutions. And and this is something that I feel a lot of Albanians are maybe less harsh than I am in just thinking, well, look, this is a combination of global and local factors that lead to this collapse, which tell you a lot of very interesting things about the system in which you live under. Whereas I feel many people in Albania see the Albanian paradigm of development as somewhat sealed off the rest of the world and somewhat isolated. And so they don't feel that these processes they're going through are actually global processes that affect a lot of countries in development that are quite similar to a number of other contexts. And that this is, in fact, how capitalism goes on to replicate itself by, you know, being parasitic on some contexts like Albania, working in the way in which they work so that other countries can develop And I feel like being in Albania, being inside Albania, makes it perhaps harder to see that because you were caught in a discourse of transition and development and and catching up. That, you know, I think now it's, of course, 97 was really dramatic and so on. But now it's been 30 years of Albanian liberalism and capitalism. And we've had 45 years of communism. Soon it's going to be 45 years of uh, capitalism and liberalism. And we'll be having the same conversations around, you know, inequality and immigration and people who are struggling. And so... I mean, of course, there are incremental changes. And of course, Albania now is not the Albania of 1997. But a lot of the discourse around corruption, around politics, the disbelief that politics can make a difference, the fact that we are at the mercy of these kind of market processes and so on, all of that hasn't really changed. And to me, that's really revealing about the place that this small country occupies in a kind of larger world. And to understand the development of that country, you can't just be looking inside. You have to think about both the inside and the outside as, as connected. And that's, I think, what makes me maybe more critical than some of my fellow citizens. So do I take it from what you're saying there that Albania now, Albania in 2022, is sort of stuck? Well, what sort of condition is the country in now in, in your analysis politically and economically? Well, I mean, I think it's like all these other East European countries in transition, you know, who more advanced and who less advanced, which are in some ways still settling accounts with their past and still trying to find out, you know, what they were, what these processes were, which is also partly why the debate around the past is so polarized and it's so hard to have a story. I mean, you know, when you mentioned, uh, this is actually important, I think, to clarify, when you mentioned that people say about my book, oh, it's downplaying communism and so on. It's actually not true. You know, in fact, the book has had these rave reviews in a lot of the right-wing anti-communist press outside Albania precisely because it's not downplaying. It's actually saying, no, this is also the left. This is what the institutional left has done. And this is, these are the costs of these social experiments in a way where democracy was neglected and other things like modernization and so on came to the fore. So it's only really about the voice in the book. And this is, I think, what gets misunderstood, the fact that there is a child who records these experiences in this kind of naivety 
that a child has. And in part, that's intentional because it's almost like you want to make sure that you record all the other voices and all the other witness experiences around you. And that's why the child needs to stand back and the author needs to stand back. Otherwise, they're kind of projecting their own narrative. And that's something that doesn't get, uh, I think, that's probably missed in Albania because people say, well, if it's not a story about like torture and blood and people who have been to prison themselves telling you about their own accounts of being in prison and so on, that's downplaying in the communist past. And I think this is a, an example of how in this kind of society like Albania, the settling with the past is really important to enable people to think about how they're going to go forward. But the settling with the past is really hard because it's so polarized and because of these, um, because people are talking past each other and because there's this resentment and, and animosity and sort of hatred that almost gets carried forward in generations, which doesn't enable people to make forward. Uh, to make progress. And institutionally and politically, as I say, it's like other countries in Eastern Europe where there is this narrative of the big old, the, 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 the big guys like the United States and the European Union, they will save us. And so what we need to make sure is that we're part of the EU and we need to do everything we can to be part of the EU with all the conditionality, with all the reform processes that that requires, which to me has a slightly negative effect on the way in which people talk about politics because it all becomes about we need to do certain things to be in the EU and the quality of the argument you have around why you need to do certain things is just downplayed. And that narrative of kind of getting into the EU, no matter what, because that's what needs to be done, I think eventually comes to haunt these countries afterwards when they've been part of the EU, like, you know, in Hungary and Poland and so on, where you didn't have these debates before. And so you're then part of the EU and you are in this liberal world that you always crave to be in but you discover that's not paradise either. And then you have this kind of backlash against these liberal institutions. And this is something that I think we need to be really careful in Albania with, but it's not part of what's, you know, it's not part of the discourse. And is there a backlash of that sort that we've seen in those other post-communist countries and in, in many of them at this point to turn towards authoritarianism? Is there any sign of that? Uh, no, I don't think there is. No, because the EU accession process doesn't let them have that because it's all about having institutions and having democracy, the rhetoric of the accession is such that you need to keep all of these down. But then if it does happen at the point at which it happens, that's where the kind of the pressure valve is released. And that's what happened in Hungary and Poland. And that's why I think it's really important that people question the way in which we seek to be part of the EU precisely to avoid those kind of authoritarian backlashes and so on afterwards. I mean, of course, there is questions around institutions and questions around the kind of personalization and politics that you face in all of these countries, which are also the result of uh, the legacy of the past. But um, yeah, I don't think there is a kind of institutional authoritarianism in the way in which, you know, maybe you see it in, in other places, or at least I hope there isn't. I'm not there. So I don't know. You know, I don't see the subtleties of that. But One last question, if, if you wouldn't mind. It seems to me that you're you're suggesting that the various forms of so-called freedom, which we've been offered by various political systems over the last half a century or more, are all severely lacking and that we're searching for some new version. Would that be true? Yeah, I think we need to think about the kind of model of development that in some ways preserves the benefits of our historical experiences and learns from the tragedies and the failures. And I think that's a democratic process. It's not something that any theory or any intellectual or that anyone in particular can settle and give to the world because I think it would be very wrong if that happened. But you need to have these conversations in as much an open mind as possible and as much in a kind of spirit of 
understanding of the limitations as possible and not in a position where some people think they know that they live in the right part of the world or that they have the right kind of theory and they just need to, to teach the other guys and, and vice versa. Leah Uppi, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Free Coming of Age at the End of History is published by Penguin. That's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon, but do remember that you can contact us with your views or your questions or your opinions at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.